Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Ryan, it's always a privilege to stand before God's people and share His Word with you. As Pastor mentioned, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning, so if you'd turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are uh, hardback, uh, black-covered Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Please grab one, take it. If you don't have one of your own, take that with you. It's our gift to you. But we'll be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, let let me just say, Pastor Ryan, over the last couple of weeks, has walked us through Luke chapter 12. We've been in Luke 12 for a while. In those three weeks, we saw Jesus, a shift in Jesus' teaching from teaching the crowd the large crowd that had gathered, to a focus on teaching his disciples, his close followers about what it means to be a disciple, teaching them what a disciple does. Three weeks ago, we looked at how disciples are not to fear. Don't fear man, but rather fear God. Two weeks ago, we saw how disciples are not to be held captive by earthly treasures, or not to covet. Last week, we looked at how disciples are not to worry or not to be anxious. So don't fear Don't be covetous. Don't be anxious. Those are three very important lessons that Jesus imparted to his followers of that day and now to us. Pastor Ryan has faithfully expounded on on these messages that Jesus gave his disciples and is encouraging us and challenging us to follow those same lessons today. So this morning, I'm going to continue Jesus' teaching to his disciples as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. And if if you're able, as is our custom, if you're able, please stand and let's honor the reading of God's Word together. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord... Are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that master says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. 
but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truthfulness of your word, the, the, the timelessness of your word. It is as relevant today as it was when it was written. Lord, it's enduring, it's lasting, it's important for us today. Lord, may the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable and pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today, our passage before us, you must be ready, be ready. The word ready, as I read through this and studied, I found three aspects three aspects of readiness that I want to share with you this morning. The first is a reflection of readiness, some images of readiness, if you will. The first reflection that I see here is a connection back to our previous three lessons. Remember I said Pastor Ryan over the last three weeks has taught us, don't fear, don't be covetous, don't be anxious. Three simple lessons, but if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we fall into one or more of those traps and Sometimes at the same time, right? I know I do. There are times when I'm fearful, when I'm covetous, I want things, when I'm anxious. So how do I get rid of myself of those things? How do I not be covetous? How do I not fear? How do I not be anxious? Well, I think the answer is in our text today. Jesus shifted his emphasis from being worried about the present, what's before you, to being watchful about the future. That's the connection between today's lesson and the previous three. One of the best ways to conquer fear, to conquer covetousness and anxiety is to be looking for the Lord's return. It's difficult for me, uh, for the things of this world to ensnare me if my mind is focused elsewhere. Or in other words, making wise use of our time by being prepared for the king's return will take our attention off of those things that trouble us today. To flip this around a little bit, well-known Christian author Max Licato. Max Licato said, worry makes you forget who's in charge. Worry makes you forget who's in charge. So if our focus is on Christ's return and being prepared and ready for Him, we take our attention off of our troubles today. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But here in today's text, Jesus explained how we can be ready for His return, remembering that He is in charge. Jesus has been teaching his disciples how to, uh, the principles for kingdom living, how to, be, how to serve when he's gone. He's preparing them for his, his soon departure. He's going to be leaving the world, the earth, and he's going to leave them to take care of a mission on their own. And he's preparing them to be ready for the day that he comes back. So the delay in his return might cause his disciples to grow weary, to grow lazy, to drift into fear, selfishness, anxiety, Right? So here he teaches his disciples that they should be ready because the Son of Man will come at a time when they are not expecting him. The next illustration of readiness I see in our text is is quite simple, and that's in verse 35, 36. First one, stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action, verse 35 says. In Jesus' day, both men and women wore long robes. Uh, I'm sure you can picture their attire with me. We've all either participated in or seen skits or plays that have been done at church and how does everybody dress in a long robe right uh 
in that day, it was, it was comfortable. In that hot environment, it was comfortable to wear a long, a long robe. But those long robes weren't very convenient for doing physical labor. Ask any woman in the room here, how easy is it to run in a skirt, right, or a long dress? Not easy. So the, the idea here, the, if you read this in the Greek, it says to, uh, to stay dressed for action or let your loins stay girded. King James would say, let your loins stay girded. In other words, to be ready for service, they would gather up that long robe, pull it up between their legs, and tie it around their waist. They would gird it around their waist, therefore converting what looked like a robe into something that resembled shorts. Now it's much easier for them to be ready. I can, I can do something at a moment's notice. I can do a physical task because I'm dressed for readiness. Our text says stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action. Let your loins be girded up. Uh, Peter later reinforced this principle. It goes beyond just a physical preparation, but it's also a preparation of our mind. 1 Peter 1.13 1 Peter 1.13, Peter said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Or if you're reading the King James, it says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Same principle. Not just a physical readiness for service, but a mental readiness for service. So that's the concept. It, but it goes far beyond, I said, that physical readiness. We need to be ready for action always. The second illustration we see here is to keep your lamps burning verse 35 the second half of verse 35 keep your lamps burning imagine yourself in jesus's day no electricity no street lights no glow from your television set to light your way right no light night no night lights the only thing that you had the only source of light was an a clay a, an oil-filled clay lamp that's what you had to light your night those lamps had to be kept burning periodically, had to be refilled periodically, had to have the wicks trimmed. And the time to prepare those lamps is not after it's dark, but to prepare them before darkness and then to keep them burning. Think about this, when the times when your own, today, when the power goes out in your house, isn't it nice to know exactly where your flashlights are? knowing if they've got fresh batteries installed in them, knowing where your candles are and having them ready. That's the idea here. Get your lamps ready before you need them. Keep them ready. Keep them um, burning. In Jesus' day, if you were expecting a visitor at night, you would keep an oil lamp burning so that when that visitor knocked on your door, you would be ready. You'd be able to see to let him in. If you hadn't prepared ahead of time, you'd find yourself stumbling around in the darkness, trying to get to the door or get things ready. So that image uh, demonstrates readiness of being on constant watch, even in the middle of the darkest night. Let's face it, folks. Do we live in a dark world today? We sure do. We live in an awfully dark world, and it's getting darker, I think, by the day. Um, Pastor Ryan mentioned the Northeast. Uh, the Northeast, uh, pray for the folks in the Northeast, in, in New England. Uh, it's spiritually dark there. Uh, we really need, if you think the Bible Belt here has been unbuckled, right? We've heard that. Uh, go visit the Northeast and you'll find a spiritual darkness. But our world is growing darker by the day. Jesus gave us another illustration of that back in, in Matthew 25. And it's not going to be up on your screen. It's a lengthy passage. But Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins who, were, uh, who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and they took oil. They took preparation. Five of them were foolish, and they took no oil, and they found themselves unprepared, 
and they were caught off guard, and they missed out on the marriage feast. Notice that in both of those illustrations, Jesus said, stay dressed for action. Not get dressed, stay dressed. And then he also said to keep your lamps burning. Those are both active, ongoing actions that are required for us. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. The Christian life doesn't consist of a single walk down an aisle and an admission of your sin. It's something that we do ongoing. It's not just an hour of warming a pew on Sunday morning. If all we do is dress ourselves on Sunday morning and light our lamps and put a smile on our face for an hour, and then as soon as we get in our cars to head home, we turn off that light, we close down ourselves for service, we undress, if you will, for action, then we are not truly ready for service. So stay dressed. Keep your lamps burning. The next illustration that I see here, the next reflection on readiness, is found in verse 36. Uh, Jesus says, Be like men or women who are expectantly waiting. Be like men who are waiting for the Master's return. Jesus gives a parable here, beginning in verse 36. He, He tells us about a master who's away at a wedding feast. He encourages his disciples to behave like men or servants, if you will, who are waiting for their master to come home. They aren't to go to bed. They aren't to engage in other activities. They aren't to become distracted by their, for their purpose, from their purpose. No, they are to anxiously wait for the expected return of their master. One commentator wrote this as I was studying. He said, Jewish weddings were often held at night because of the Middle Eastern heat. And it was something of a game as to when exactly the wedding would take place. The groom would would leave his home, show up unannounced at the bride's house, and then take her home with him to his father's house. The bride's wedding party needed to be ready at any moment to follow the wedding procession if they wanted to be in on the wedding. That's the idea of the ten virgins. We don't know when he's coming But we need to be ready because when he shows up to take his bride, if we want to be in on it, we have to be ready. Here in this parable in Luke, Jesus is describing a wedding where the groom has gone to get his bride. And now he's coming back to his father's house. Will those servants be ready and waiting when he comes? Bring his new groom to the door, or his new bride to the door? Warren Wearsby agrees with this story that that it's about a master who went off to get married. The picture here, he says this. He said, it's it's, it's a picture of a new husband coming home with his bride. Most certainly, he would not want to be kept waiting on this special night when he showed up at the door. So Jesus tells his disciples that that the master shouldn't have to bang on the door and wait for his servants to, to get up and come sleepily to the door, stumbling over things in the dark. When the master arrives, the servants are to be ready regardless of what time he appears. Uh, And applied spiritually, the sense here is that we are to be ready for the Lord Jesus when he returns in glory. We sang songs this morning about going to heaven and what heaven's going to be like, but we need to be ready for that. Don't take this parable in Luke 12, though, as as an allegorical reference to to the messianic banquet or the marriage supper of the Lamb, because that's to take place after the coming of Christ. But rather, this reference here is just uh, giving us an idea about the uncertain length of time for the master's return. Do we know when Jesus is coming back? No, we don't. He could come today. Please, Lord. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be next year. 
We don't know when he's coming, but he doesn't expect us to have to be woken from our spiritual slumber when he arrives. The way that we should be expectantly waiting for our Lord's return could be like that of a a pregnant woman. My daughter is here this morning and she has a newborn. For the, the few months before that child was born, any mother here, any mom here, what did you do during those nine months? You bought diapers. You bought bottles, you bought toys, you decorated the room. You did it, right, Lizzie? You did everything to get ready for that coming child. You didn't just sit around and twiddle your thumbs for that time frame while you're waiting for that child. No, you actively, expectantly waited for that child to come, preparing for that day. That's the way that we should be preparing for Jesus to come. We should be preparing our homes, our lives, just like we would for an expectant child. The good news about babies is we kind of know when they're coming, right? Within a week or two. But with Christ's return, we don't know. So we need to be ready constantly. So we've looked at some reflections on readiness. Now let's look at our, my second point, and that is um, the rewards of readiness. Rewards of readiness. Well, first one I've already alluded to. It, it, it focusing on the future frees us from present troubles. As I've already stated, focusing on the future can help us alleviate those, those issues of anxiety and fear and covetousness. I don't know if you're like me, but the times in my life when I'm most often fearful, when I most often begin to say, boy, I wish I had more stuff, the times when I'm the most anxious is when I've got nothing to do, when I'm idle. Anybody else? When I'm idle, that's when I find that. I find myself drifting into a focus on the present, on myself. And that leads to fear, that leads to anxiety, that leads to a desire for things. Conversely, when I'm busy, when I'm actively doing something, when my mind's occupied with a task, I don't have time to focus on those other things. So this observation is supported by a a study that was done in 2018 by BMC Public Health. BMC Public Health wrote that a sedentary behavior is associated with increased anxiety Researchers found that low-energy activities that involve sitting down, such as watching TV, using the computer, riding the bus, playing video games, increased the risk of anxiety. You finding yourself full of anxiety in your life? Be active. Get to do something. They went on to say that idle time is nourishment for worry. Idle time is nourishment for worry. A familiar proverb says it this way, idle minds are the devil's workshop. You've probably heard that. Ephesians 2.10 says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's almost as if God knew what was best for us. <laughs> you think? So being prepared and actively waiting for the Lord's return gives us a sense of purpose. It alleviates anxiety and fear and covetousness. Prepare for the Lord's return like an expectant mother and father would for a child. Next, we're going to be blessed. Our scripture says we're going to be blessed by the master. Verse 37, verse 38. Jesus tells his disciples twice that if they are ready for his arrival, they will be blessed. Verse 37, and at the beginning of verse 37, the end of verse 38. They are servants who are obligated to to prepare for their master's return, but they're going to be blessed in return. So what exactly does it mean to be blessed? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's look at it. Our society today has, a, has a, a warped view of what it means to be blessed, doesn't it? 
If you, if you search Facebook, Instagram, Twitter for the word blessed or hashtag blessed, you will find millions of posts. Millions of posts. The hashtag, hashtag blessed can be found in posts that highlight pictures of beautiful places, uh, toned bodies, new babies, graduations, successes, new cars, abundance. All of these good things may be considered gifts to humanity by a loving God, but hashtag blessed seems to say that that's the only way God blesses us, is by giving us obviously good stuff. That just, folks, that just isn't good theology. To define a blessed life as one of abundance, power, popularity, or success. You want some evidence for that? Just flip back a few chapters. Luke chapter 6. Hopefully these will be up on the screen. Luke 6, beginning at verse 20. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Poor, hungry, weeping, hated, reviled. Those don't sound like words that go along with a hashtag blessed life, does it? But look at verse 33. Verse 23, excuse me. Look at the next verse, verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great on earth in heaven. So, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Here Jesus describes a life of blessing that was countercultural in his day, and it remains countercultural in our society today as well. The blessing that Jesus described isn't shallow, passing, or temporary. It's not based on your circumstances, that new car, that new job, that new baby. No, it's a deep-rooted joy that doesn't shift with circumstances. It doesn't fade. The, uh, the Oxford Advanced Learner's Dictionary has a definition for the word blessed, and I like it. The first two, the first two uh, definitions of the word blessed is made holy or consecrated, and the second one, endowed with divine favor and protection. I, I found that rather encouraging that, that a, a dictionary def- gave the first, the principal definition uh, of blessed as being made holy. That's great thinking. That's how we should view being blessed. God is making us more like Him. As I was preparing this week, I found a resource that listed four ways from Ephesians chapter 1 that we are truly blessed. Hopefully this should be up on the screen. Ephesians 1, 3, we're blessed because of the spiritual blessings that far outweigh any earthly blessings. Hashtag blessed, that new car, that's going to go away, that's going to fade but Ephesians 1.3, we are blessed because of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and they will far outweigh any earthly blessings. Ephesians 1.4-6, we are blessed because uh, as sons and daughters of the King, we will receive the riches, blessings, and very nature of Christ. Being made holy. We will be made holy. Ephesians 1.7, we are blessed because we are redeemed and forgiven receiving the riches of his grace as he has made known to us the mystery of his will, the gospel. And then Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. We are blessed because we have a guaranteed inheritance and we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until we receive possession of that. We've been blessed 
but it's in the future. It's not what we see today. But that blessing far will far exceed what we have today. So do you want a circumstance-driven, fleeting kind of blessed life? Or do you want one that's going to be deep and eternal? According to Jesus, that deep-seated, eternal blessing comes not to those who are rich, powerful, successful, or popular. Rather, it comes to those who will endure suffering. Anxious, anxiously, expectantly waiting for His return in a, a constant state of readiness. Jesus wants His disciples to understand that as servants, His coming is their, should be their number one priority. There's an obvious tension here between duty and love, right? If we're servants and we're expected to do that, there's a sense of duty. But we should be doing it out of a sense of love, not duty. The word translated waiting in our text there, in the verse 36, really means to look forward to. I'm going to ask, I'm putting Lizzie on the spot because she's here. Lizzie, you were expecting that child to come. Did you, did you prepare because you had to do it? Or you did it because you loved the child that was coming? It's obviously a love for the child that makes you prepare. And that's the way we should be serving the Lord out of a sense of love. Um, 2 Timothy 4.8. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who've loved his appearing. Are you serving out of a sense of obligation and duty or out of a sense of love? Love for your master. As disciples, we're to love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We're to longingly look forward to, to his coming. Um, I found an illustration. Dean Farrar. Dean Farrar was the uh, uh, dean at Westminster Abbey. And he was a, a personal friend of Queen Victoria. On one occasion, he, had, he told of a conversation he had with Queen Victoria after she had heard one of her chaplains preach a message on the Lord's return. And she said, Oh, Dean Farrar, how I wish the Lord would come during my lifetime. When he asked why she desired this, her, her countenance brightened, and with a deep emotion, she replied, because I would love to lay my crown at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. That was her attitude. Christians, there, we find Christians who are two ways that Christians are waiting for the Lord's return. There are those that acknowledge mentally, yeah, I know God's coming. I, I believe that he's coming, but I'm not actively serving. I'm not doing anything to prepare for that. I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm like a, a parent who's got a child coming, but I'm not doing a thing in my house to get ready. And then there are those who are serving, waiting, anxiously waiting for the Lord's return. That's the way we should be. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. The next aspect of, of, of reward for readiness, and I love this in the text. Verse 37b, um, at a Jewish wedding, the groom and his bride, they're treated like royalty, like kings and queens. Yet here in this story, Look at what verse 37 says. Please, if I put that up. Uh, Jesus goes against the norm. He says, Blessed are those servants who the master will find awake when he comes. Truly, I say, he, the master, will dress himself for service. Have them, the servants, recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Think about that, folks. Our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to serve us the marriage feast in heaven. Isn't that good news? He's going to turn around and serve us if we're ready, if we find ourselves ready. He's going to return the favor. It's, it's role reversal here. 
The ready servants are going to lie down at the table to eat. The master's going to put on servants' clothes. He's going to gird his loin. He's going to turn around and serve up, serve us. I found that a beautiful picture. Jesus puts uh, an emphasis on servant leadership, doesn't he? Throughout his ministry. Look at some examples of Jesus from Scripture that describe the servant leadership of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 6. The whole chapter, it's a beautiful passage. But here we see Jesus as the suffering servant who bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was stricken, smitten by God, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and had our sin laid upon him. Suffering servant. Jesus is going to suffer for us, serving his servants. In John chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, we see him as the humble servant who washes his disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands when he came from God and was going back to God, verse 4, please, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, laid it around his waist, and he washed his disciples' feet. So he's the suffering servant. He's the humble servant. Philippians 2.8, Philippians 2.8, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see him as a humble and obedient servant. And then finally in Luke, or excuse me, Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45, he's the son of man who does not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus placed a high premium on humble, obedient service. That's what he expects from us, but we're going to be rewarded. He's going to flip the turn the tables and he's going to serve us for those who are truly prepared and truly ready. All of us then should take lessons from Jesus and be, be servants like he was. The third aspect, uh, the next aspect of a reward for readiness is kind of a, uh, a, a reverse reward, if you will. And that's we won't be caught off guard. We aren't going to be caught off guard. Verses 38 to 40. The faithful, prepared, and watching servant will be blessed and served by their master. That should be reward enough but also they won't be caught off guard. Verse 38, if he, the master, comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How many want to have their house broken into? (laughs) No hands? How many people like being caught off guard? by some unexpected, horrific event. Nobody. We don't like being caught off guard. It takes us out of our comfort zone. If Jesus returns and we're not ready, we will be caught off guard, like a thief coming in the night. The, the Romans divided their, the night into four watches. Uh, the second watch was between uh, 9 p.m. and midnight. The third watch from midnight to 3 a.m. The, the idea here is it doesn't matter when the, when the master returns. When that thief comes, it could come in the middle of the night. You need to be ready. If you're not ready, you will be caught off guard. So by being ready, we remove, that's kind of a reverse reward, as I said. We're we're not going to be caught off guard. Jesus gives us that picture of a thief coming in repeatedly um, throughout Scripture to refer to his coming uh, as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Revelation 3.3, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And then Revelation 16.15, behold, I come like a thief. That's the way the Lord's return is going to be. Do you want to be caught off guard? I don't. Do you want to be ready? Actively, anxiously, serving and preparing for His return. Perhaps you were like me, I don't know, as a child, I loved to play hide-and-seek with my brothers, right? Hide-and-seek. When the person who was it, right, somebody was designated to be it, they would cover their eyes and begin counting, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, right? What, what did everybody else do? Everybody else scattered and went to go find a place. When the person who was it was done counting, what did they typically call out? Ready or not, here I come. If you were trying to hide and you hadn't quite found a place yet, what went through your brain when you heard, when you heard that called out? Oh no, panic. What, what, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? That's the way Jesus says he's coming. Ready or not, folks, he's coming. Ready or not, here I come. He's not going to wait for you. He's not going to give you an invitation to say, hey, I'm coming next week. I need you to get your house in order. You've got to be ready always because we don't know when it will come. Two things I know. I don't know when he's coming, but two things I know. The Son of Man is coming. He is coming, and you must be ready and alert for his coming. That's a warning for both believers and unbelievers today, for all of us. Um, the only way we can be ready is first we need to acknowledge our sin, our sinful state. We need to repent of our sins. We need to trust Jesus as our Savior. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves on the outside looking in, just like those five foolish virgins. Those five foolish virgins found themselves unprepared. I think they're a picture of the unbelievers. Oh, those five, those five virgins, do you think they considered themselves part of the group? Yes. Do you think the other five considered them part of the group? Probably. So we have ten virgins, five that are ready and prepared and five that aren't. They all, they all in the same group. Do you think there are people in churches in America today who think they're part of the group? Do you think there are people in the church, Christians, who think others in the church are part of the group? Yeah. Jesus, the Master, knows the difference. When he comes and the door is shut, they're banging on the outside. And what did he say to them? I do not know you. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. That's the first way we need to be ready. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, acknowledged your sin, repented of your sin, accepted Jesus as your Savior, then you will find yourself on the outside, knocking on the door and getting a response back, I never knew you. Christians, there are some responsibilities of readiness. My last point, ready, responsibilities of readiness. I see these in verses 41 to 48. We've looked at reflections of readiness. We've looked at the, the rewards of readiness. And now we'll look at some responsibilities of readiness. Jesus is clear. We are to watch and wait until he returns. But just in case you think that all he expects from us is to sit and twiddle our thumbs and just look up to the sky and wait for him to come back, we're missing the boat here. Um, our generation today shuns words like duty and obligation. Jesus wants us not only to be awake and ready, but he expects us to be living in obedience as, as we wait. Verse 41, uh, Peter, 
Surprise, surprise, right? Of course, Peter. Peter asks the million-dollar question, Lord, are, are you telling this parable for us, the twelve, or for, for all? He's trying to figure out if Jesus is speaking to just the twelve disciples or to that entire, that large crowd that had gathered. I think Peter was probably expecting a warning of judgment for others. Jesus, yeah, I'm sure you're not talking to us. You're talking to all those people, right? Uh, but I think Peter was probably surprised by Jesus' answer that he got back. Jesus never directly answers Peter's question, but he responds to Peter with another parable and, and a question of his own. Um, and in that parable, Jesus puts everyone, the disciple and the cra- disciples and the crowd, into, into, I see, I think, four groups of people. And maybe you'll find yourself in one of these four groups of people as I describe them. The first group is faithful servants. Faithful servants, verse 40, 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager? Faithful and wise manager. Uh, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. This parable centers on, a, on a, 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 an administrator or a steward, if you will, who is both wise and faithful. One who can make good decisions and carry out the tasks that have been given to him. Uh, to this person, the master gives a larger responsibility. Making sure, uh, he gives him a large responsibility to make sure that his, his other servants are fed and cared for and, and taken care of. What did Jesus tell Peter when Peter said, you know, asked the question, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? What did he say to him? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I think that's a reference here. A wise and faithful servant will feed the sheep, feed the other servants. A steward then manages the resources of somebody else. It's not resources that the steward owns. We as Christians are stewards. We've been given the stewardship of relationships, of, of the gospel. We are to share it. We're to feed others. God expects us to utilize those gifts that He wisely gives to us um, and expects, expects us to serve Him that way. So there's an insinuation here to the disciples who were chosen by Jesus for the very purpose of carrying out the spiritual welfare of others. So Jesus is answering Peter, and I think he's seeing himself in the response. The next group that I see here is uh, the unfaithful or abusive servants. Uh, Verse 45, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So these are some very difficult verses. Yet what Jesus seems to be saying here is that some of his servant leaders are going to grow weary of watching, waiting, and working. And perhaps they're thinking, I've got plenty of time. He's not coming. He's delayed. So they begin to live for themselves. They take what's been given to them and they, they, they heap it upon themselves. They become covetous. Perhaps they're fearful and they're anxious. They're covetous. They take it for themselves. Jesus, when he comes, is going to find them unprepared, and they will be punished. Let me say this. I don't believe that this passage implies that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that at all. If you can't earn your salvation in the first place, then you can't unearn it. If you can't work, if works can't save you, then the lack of works can't unsave you. But what it does mean here, the phrase cut in pieces really means to be cut off or to be separated 
the Lord here is going to separate the faithful believers from the unfaithful believers. The faithful believers are going to receive a reward. The unfaithful believers are not going to. They will be punished. Paul gives us some clarity here. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone's built, upon the fa- built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So two, to two groups so far. The third group is the lazy servants. Lazy servants, verse 47, or I like to use the word marginal Christians, perhaps. This category, they, they knew the master's will, but they didn't get ready or act in accordance with 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 the master's will, they're still going to receive a severe beating. This refers to people who've been in religious circles enough to to know the truth, but they don't act upon it. Many people today procrastinate, thinking, well, if someday I'll follow Christ, someday I'll do that, someday I'll serve Him, but right now I'm too busy with my job, I'm too busy with my career, my family, my business, my, my friends, my hobbies. I'm just too busy right now. Later I'll do that. Besides, in, in today's world, you have to cut corners, so I'm just, I'm just not ready yet. This should be a warning to every one of us here this morning, to hear the pr- truth proclaimed Sunday after Sunday, only to go out and ignore it is, not, is a very risky way to, to lead our lives. The term marginal Christianity is, 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 has a lot of definitions today, but here's one I found that I love. It said, marginal Christianity is the life that refuses to surrender everything to the one who gave everything. Ouch. If you're like me, that, that hurts. It's hard to sing sometimes, I surrender all, when in my mind I think it's I surrender some. Um, but we need to be prepared. The last, the last category is the ignorant servants. The ignorant servants. Verse 48a, but, they're, but they are also without excuse. The fourth last category for those who will be judged is those who, who didn't even know the Master's will. I, I didn't know what His will was. I, I didn't do it. Jesus indicates that God is a just judge, but he's still a judge nonetheless. There's a well-known phrase in our judicial system that says what? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Let me illustrate that. If I were to drive 70 miles an hour down a country road and the police pulled me over and and gave me a ticket, he's not going to let me off just because I told him I didn't see a speed limit sign, right? You should have known better. Well, Scripture tells us, Romans 1.18 It makes it abundantly clear that even those who have never heard of Christ have enough revelation through creation and conscience to know that there is a righteous God. But they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. So what's the result? They are without excuse. Without excuse. So don't take this last category as as an excuse for willful willful ignorance. I'm just going to close my ears when pastor's preaching. I don't want to hear it because I don't want to be accountable. We will be accountable. There is no excuse for not knowing God's will. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Christian, you've got God's word before you. There's no excuse. 2 Peter 3, 18 tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus answers Peter's question by putting everyone disciples and the crowd into one of four groups 
I think today, if we look at ourselves, we can find, our, we can find us in probably one of those four categories. Some people, by virtue of their greater knowledge, age, experience, and influence in the church, are going to suffer greater penalty than those who, uh, uh, who are otherwise, who, who don't know as much. But every one of us is going to have to give an account for what we've done in our lives. Jesus sums it up in verse 48 when he says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Sunday school teachers, deacons, pastors in this room, CDC workers, good news club workers, you've been given an awesome responsibility to be prepared and ready and to, to steward the gospel that God's given to you. So let me wrap things up uh, with some key points. We need readiness for the Lord is, 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 a re, is an antidote for fear and anxiety and covetousness. Readiness requires preparation. Readiness requires ongoing action. Keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action. Readiness leads to rewards. Readiness brings responsibilities with it. And the lack of readiness will bring punishment. To wrap it up, let me put a bow on this. I think each one of us today needs to answer these questions. Am I living for today only with no regard for the Master's return? Am I foolishly putting His return out of my mind thinking I've got more time? A teacher uh, told his class that he was going to be go away for several weeks and he offered to give a prize to the student whose desk was the, the neatest when he came back. Because the prize was, a, was a, a, a big prize, every child was determined to get it, including a little girl whose desk was normally very, very messy. I'm looking at my daughter. <laughs> Her classmates jeered and said, Mary, you'll never win. Your desk is never neat. And she said, well, I've got a plan for that. I'm going to clean my desk the first day of every week from now on. But someone said, well, suppose he comes at the end of the week. Hmm. Well, then I'll clean it every morning, she said. Another classmate said, well, he may come at the end of the day. Hmm. For a moment she thought, and then she said, I know what I'll do. I'll just keep it clean. That's the way God expects us to be prepared, to be ready for his return. Always ready, actively ready, like this child who says, I'm just going to keep it ready. I'm going to keep it clean. If you want to receive the Lord's blessing, you have to be ready for his return. Let me pray. I'll ask our musicians to come back up, Pastor Ryan. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word, the truthfulness of your word. Oh God, I don't know when you're coming. Today, tomorrow, next week, next year. But I know you're coming. Your word tells us you're coming. And your word also says that you cannot lie. So Lord, we have a promise, a promise of your return. There's an obligation, a duty, an expectation for us to be prepared. God, help us to do it lovingly, not out of a sense of duty, not out of a I have to do it kind of a, an attitude. But Lord, help us to serve you because we love you. Lord, help us to long for that day when you're going to reverse the roles and you will serve us in heaven. What a great promise. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ryan.